0: So John 13 is where we're at. We are now entering a portion of John that is rather long, and all of it takes place the last night of Jesus' death, the last really 24 hours of Jesus' death. Jesus here uh, in 13, this is the Passover night. They're going to have this Passover meal together, and he's going to instate the first communion. And then the rest of the dialogue that happens in 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all happens the same night. So a huge portion of John's gospel is devoted to the last night of Jesus' life. And, and you know, it's, even in John's gospel it says uh, if we could write down all of the things that Jesus ever said and did, it would fill all sorts of books. So John even knew, like, I can't even possibly give you everything that Jesus said and did. But these are some of the most important things, and John really gives us a close insight in what that last night of Jesus' life looks like. And so these next uh, few weeks, we're looking at this last night, right? This last night before he's he's crucified, and um, he really just unloads so much to his disciples, so much for them to learn, and. Some of this is, is just some of the most beautiful stuff that Jesus ever says is all in this last part here. Um, he's been with these guys for three and a half years, discipling them, teaching them. And now he's giving them these parting words before his, his death so that they will truly understand what is about to happen. And then we'll see in 18 and, uh, where he's arrested and um, 19 where he's um, crucified So these last chapters is all within the last 24 hours here of Jesus' life. But today we're looking at chapter 13. And so keep in mind here the significance of all of this. This is the last 24 hours before the cross. This is the last night. This is the final parting words to his disciples before his death. And he chooses to start it off by washing his disciples' feet. Think about that. Let's read. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end and supper being ended. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, you um, are you washing my feet? Let's stop there for a moment. So this is the feast. They have the Passover dinner. And as it's ending, it says, listen, like you can't miss the significance of what it says here. Um, As he's girding up and he's, like that's a, it's a motion for like if you were wearing like like this long tunic or whatever or a robe, you would gird it up, like tie it around your thighs or something because you're ready to work. Like it's not gonna be in your way. Like he's girding up to get ready to work And then it says here um, in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, right? And that he had come from God and was going to God. Think about that. He knows that all authority, power, honor, and glory are his. He's fully aware of it. He's fully conscious of it. And John wants us to realize it before we see what Jesus does here. Hey, don't forget who Jesus is. He is king of the universe, creator, sustainer. He holds our breath in his hands, the Bible says. He holds all things together. That man, that Jesus, girds up his clothes, gets on his knees and washes the feet of the disciples. And so you have some context. That was the job for the lowest servant or a slave. Like, you know how when you're at work and you've got the jobs that you give to the new guy? (laughs) Right? The the worst job, cleaning out this or that, and it's kind of like a test for the new guy, like, hey, go do that, you know? Uh, This was the lowest position for a servant. And oftentimes, servants wouldn't even do it. It would be the slaves that would do it. So Jesus, as the all-powerful king of the universe, God incarnate, God in flesh with all authority, power, and glory gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. We can't forget the significance of that. We can't miss it, right? He humbles himself. That's how he chooses to start off the night. You would think he would start off the night by like, hey guys, so you're about to see some pretty amazing stuff. I'm going to rise from the dead. So I need you guys all to bow down before me. I'm going to get on this throne here. I'm going to stand on the table. You guys need to carry me around. I don't know. Like, you know, in the flesh, our pride would do something better. Like I'm about to save your souls and the rest of the world's souls if they'll believe in me. Give me some glory. Give me some honor. Like, why not you carry me around the city and talk about how great I am? You would think it would be something else besides the lowest possible position. But Jesus is giving us an example of what it looks like to be a servant and to be a leader, which is to go to the lowest place. So he washes their feet. And listen, like, it's not like these disciples were getting monthly pedicures and had pretty feet. <laughs> right? Right? How many of you get pedicures? Guys, you can raise your hand, too, if you do, right? Anybody? Huh? No one gets pedicures in here? Come on. A few, a few of you get pedicures. Okay. I, Melissa's tried to get me to get a pedicure so many times, and I'm like, babe, I, I just can't do that. <laughs> I just can't. Okay. If other guys want to, I'm not going to judge them for it, but I really don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, so I have refused. And so these disciples, they're, they're dudes, right? And they walk around in sandals. They probably don't have the best hygiene. Their toenails are probably pretty nasty. Their feet are probably covered in just mud, and it's gross. And Jesus gets down there, and he scrubs away. Like it's not like just like a nice pat on their foot. Like he's like girding up, like he's getting ready to work. Like he's probably got a scrub brush, and he's just like going at it, right? And he washes their feet, and uh, he even washes the feet of Judas would betray him Judas who's been listening to Satan Judas who Satan's been putting stuff on his heart Judas who Jesus knows he knows all things Judas who's been stealing the money from the other disciples who had been trusted to be the treasurer but instead was taking money for himself Judas who was about to go and sell Jesus life for 30 pieces of silver that Judas Jesus gets on his knees and washes his feet could you do that the person that's about to betray you, the person that's about to kill you, and a bunch of guys who are going to abandon you, who are going to run away, who are going to be cowards, who are all talk and no action. Could you wash their feet? Could you serve them in that way? (laughs) I would have a very, very difficult time, wouldn't you? i say, you guys don't deserve this. You guys have no idea. I'm not like, I'm about to go die for your sins. Every one of your disgusting things that you ever did, I'm about to go and take the penalty for it on the cross. Physically and spiritually, he took the weight of all of our sin. Yeah, he's still there. He's washing their feet. You know how Da Vinci painted that? the Lord's Supper, right, that picture, and you see that it's like this long table and they're sitting there. It's actually not really what it would have looked like at all um, from reading the Gospels uh, and knowing the, you know, the culture and the context. They didn't sit at a long table like this all on one side. Has anyone ever done that? First off, have you ever gone to a dinner where there's a long table and you all sit on one side? <laughs> Maybe for a picture with a camera, but they didn't have that, so Da Vinci's painting is stupid. But... <laughs> What they would have sat at is like a U-shaped table, a U-shaped table, and it would have been low to the ground, and they would have lounged, and they would have probably lounged kind of leaning around like that. And it seems like John is sitting here at the, at the one end, and Jesus is sitting there. And from, from reading it, it seems like Jesus goes around, probably starting with John, and he washes all of the disciples' feet, and it seems like G, uh, Peter is at the end. And so Peter is the type of guy who probably, he runs his mouth. He thinks pretty highly of himself. And so I think Peter's sitting at the end watching all the other guys wash their feet. And he's like, how could they let him wash their feet? And he's getting probably judgmental of them. Like, why would you let, it, like, Jesus wash your feet? Like, that's a low position that's a that's a slave's job why would you guys do that I'm going to be better than all them. so he's at the end right and he kind of gets to get high and mighty here and Peter says Lord are you washing my feet Jesus answered and said to him what I am doing you do not understand now but you will know after this Peter said to him you shall never wash my feet right Simon Peter said to him Lord not well, sorry, and then you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter then goes, okay. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is uh, completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew, who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So he's saying, I'm washing your guys' feet, but you're not ready for the full washing yet because he knew one of them was going to betray him. Simon Peter said to him, or sorry, I I normally read from my iPad. I'm thrown off here. Um, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to him, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not if you know them, but if you do them. Jesus says that he sets an example for these disciples. These disciples who would abandon him. One of them would betray him. But it's also the same disciples that after his resurrection, he's going to commission and empower by his Holy Spirit to reach the ends of the earth. And he says, you don't know what I'm doing here. You don't fully understand the significance of this moment, but I want you to remember it. And later, I want you to remember that the Lord, your teacher, washed your feet, and I want you to do that for others. I want you to be a servant for others. I want you to take the lowest position for others. I want you to take the job that nobody else wants to do. I want you to be a servant, to be a servant leader. That's the example that Jesus is giving his disciples here. Let's continue reading. So we have Jesus washing his disciples' feet, showing them what true servant leadership looks like. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So he quotes Psalm uh, 41 here. Uh, I think we do have it at the end of the slides there uh, for him. 41, uh, nine. This is David, who is writing about a friend who betrayed him. He says, even my own familiar friend, this is David speaking, writing a song about being betrayed. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who I, who I, Sorry, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus quotes this psalm as he's um, talking about his betrayer. And then we see, uh, let's go turn over. We're going to turn over to 2 Samuel. Um, David was the king at this time in this book here um, of 2 Samuel. And his son Absalom is trying to overthrow David and become the king. He wants to become the king. But that's not what David's writing about. He's not writing about his, his son trying to take over his kingdom. He's writing about Athiphophel, which is a great name for, if any of you are looking for baby names. <laughs> Athiphophel is a great name. Um, let's read. First we'll see verse 13, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 now a messenger came to David saying the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom so Absalom had a lot of pull a lot of people were saying yeah we want Absalom to be the king not you David and so many were going with Absalom and they were kind of creating their own army they're creating their own government they wanted to overthrow David and so that's bad enough right but then we'll jump down to verse 30 so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, uh, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Ahithophel sounds like you're speaking in tongues, right? So then David writes that psalm about his friend who betrayed him. Athithophel was his, one of his closest counselors and one of his closest friends who, who really stood by his side for many, many years. And then he finds out that he's betraying him and he's going to go with his son to try to overthrow him. And so David writes that psalm about the one who would betray him. And then Jesus quotes that psalm and says, there's one that's betraying me. One that eats bread with me is betraying me. And David, he went to the foot of the mountain, Mount of Olives to weep and to pray and to mourn. And then he goes up the Mount of Olives. Do you know where Jesus goes after this dinner? To the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the same place that David did. You see, when you read the Old Testament, there's so many symbolisms of Christ. Yes, this is a real story about David, but it was also a foreshadowing of things that were going to happen to Christ. One was going to betray him, and he, as the king, was going to go to this garden to weep and to ascend the mountain of Olives. It's beautiful imagery. It's a beautiful prophecy. So Jesus quotes it so that they know it and understand it, um, I'll move my uh, marker here. So imagine that you're in this room. You've just washed all of their feet. And you know that one of them is going to betray you. And that even one of them, his heart has been moved by Satan. He's been listening to Satan. Not, like Not just a demon, but Satan himself. Now, there's only two people in the Bible that we know are possessed by Satan himself. We see many people who are possessed by demons, but only two who are possessed by Satan, Judas and the Antichrist. Judas, we're going to see in this next passage, is going to partake of communion, and during it, open his heart completely to Satan and be possessed by Satan himself. Think about that. Let's read Verse 19, Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. Most assuredly I say to you, who, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter. Um, therefore motioned to him and asked who it was of whom he spoke. So Jesus says this thing about you guys are gonna receive me, you're gonna see who I am, and so forth. And he says, But one of you is going to betray me. They all look at each other like, Who is it? Is it me? Like, you know? And what's interesting is that they had no idea that. Judas was this far gone. They had no idea that Judas had been opening up his heart to Satan. They had no idea. And so they're looking around. And again, we see Jesus and John are sitting on this side and the disciples and then Peter on the other end. And it says, and so John's the youngest one. He was like a young kid. Uh, All the others were probably in their 20s and 30s. John was like a teenager. And so Jesus kind of treated him like a kid. And he's sitting there next to Jesus. And uh, Peter motions to John like to ask who it is. Right? So, what did what that, you're across the table, have you ever done this? You're across the table from somebody and you're trying to communicate to them. What does that normally look like? Right? You're like, ask him who, it is. who is it? Right? He's like, like, ask him who it is. You're next to him, ask him. And then, so it seems that John then ask Jesus who it is. But from the context, I think Jesus says it quiet enough that only John hears. Um, Because we're going to see that the rest of the disciples are, are surprised by something. And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something uh, to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. So it seems like John is the only one who hears Jesus say, the one I'm going to give the piece of bread specifically to is the one who's betraying me. And then Jesus just straight up looks at him as Satan has now possessed him and says, go do what you need to do. And Judas just leaves there to go and make a deal with the officials to have Jesus arrested and crucified. So that dipped bread, that's the symbol for communion. It's the same symbol that Jesus gives the rest of the disciples and we partake of as believers to remember what Jesus did on the cross, which is the bread and the cup, the bread representing his body that was broken for us, the cup representing his, his blood that was shed for us on that cross. And it's in the same symbol that Judas is possessed by Satan. I was struck by that, truly. That something that was supposed to mean so much to those who believed, something that is supposed to be a moment of confession, repentance, and receiving forgiveness, Instead, is the same moment for Judas. He is possessed and betrays Jesus. And then the rest of the disciples were still surprised. They didn't realize that it was Judas. Um, only John seems to have heard him say it. Then we go into this next part. And for the rest of these passages, Jesus is just teaching his disciples uh, um, a whole bunch of things really, and we'll look at them in the future weeks, but we'll cover a couple parts here in the rest of chapter 13. Verse 31, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, well, now the betrayer's out of the room, so he's gonna do some teaching, <laughs> right? I would have a hard time teaching with a betrayer in the room too. Uh, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus had started that night, as a humble servant, showing them, hey, this is the example I give you, give you is to serve one another. And then we see that Judas is betraying him. He, he shows uh, that it's Judas to John, and then he, Judas leaves, and then he teaches them here about his glory, but that specifically for the disciples, you need to love one another. And this is the sign that you are a disciple, is if you have my kind of love for one another. This is the true love. This is agape love. This is pure love. Then we see Simon Peter talking again. And he said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, you will lay down your life for my sake. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow um, until you have denied me three times. So it's an interesting passage here. Peter is both right and wrong in his his words to Jesus here. He wants to follow Jesus. Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. right, so Jesus knows that Peter is going to get scared. He's going to be a coward. He's going to bail. And he knows that right now, Peter does not have the spiritual strength to actually follow Jesus to the cross. But he says, but you shall follow me afterward you shall follow me afterward. So when Peter here says, uh, "I would lay my life down for you." He's actually right. The timing's wrong. <laughs> Peter is thinking in his personal strength. His mental, physical, emotional strength. Right now, I think I could I could follow you to death, Jesus. I'd lay my life down for you. Jesus is like, "No, no, you you know, not now. You won't." But afterward, he will. And then we know that Peter, after Jesus rises from the dead, Peter receives the Holy Spirit. We see Peter in Acts as a completely different man than he was in the Gospels. In the Gospels, he's running his mouth. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He's oftentimes foolish or even stupid. Uh, But then in in Acts, he receives the Holy Spirit of God. He's seeing the risen uh, Savior. He has the Holy Spirit. He preaches. He's bold. And ultimately, Peter and his wife were crucified together. So he did follow Jesus. He did lay his life down for Jesus. And Jesus even says, right now you won't, but afterward you will. And I find it really beautiful. See, there's a transformative effect in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's the center of everything we believe as Christians. Before the cross, Peter couldn't do what he said he could do. Peter didn't have the strength. He didn't have the ability After the cross, Peter's a changed man. And it's the same story for all of us. If we truly receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior before the cross, we're something different. After the cross, we're something different. Two totally separate people. The Bible calls it a new creation. A new man. That's what we are to be. Before the cross and after the cross. There is a transformative effect. Jesus even recognizes it here for Peter beforehand. Beforehand. But listen, this is what communion represents, right? We're going to partake of communion today. And that's what communion represents, that Jesus, his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And then we receive that and we are to be transformed, right? And then we partake of communion to remember always what he has done for us. But it's in the same moment that's supposed to mean so much for Christians that Judas is possessed by Satan, It's in the same symbol, and I think it's perfectly uh, possible for people to partake in a lot of Christian things, but still be enemies of God. It's possible to say a prayer, to partake of communion, to worship, to raise your hands, to read your Bible, and still be an enemy of God, to still be a betrayer. You know why that is? It's because it's not about your actions. It's about whether or not you have been transformed and are something new altogether. Peter, we see, is something transformed. Like he is a new creation in Acts. He's completely different. He's no longer lying to people. I don't know who that Jesus is. And we'll see, like, in this passage, and we'll, we'll correlate it to other passages in the Scripture, Peter's denying Jesus. He doesn't just deny Jesus. He swears to God he doesn't know him. The language is so strong as it, let God, like, destroy me, kill me, smite me if I know him, if I'm lying to you. That's how strong. He, he doesn't just kind of shy away a little bit from Jesus, pretend he doesn't know him. He swears to God. I don't know. And then afterwards, he lays his life down. And he even says, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. Crucify me upside down. There's also, you read some of the, the history there. Like, I love Peter because of the transformation. I really do. So, but you read about it, and his wife is going to be crucified first. Imagine that. And Peter says to, him, to, to his wife, Remember your Savior. Remember your Savior. You know, we don't see who his wife was. We don't know anything about her, but we do know that she was around when Jesus was there. We know that she was uh, married to Peter while Peter was following Jesus because in a few passages it talks about them staying at Peter's mother-in-law's house. So we know that this woman had followed Jesus to him and had known him. And so can you imagine, to his wife saying, Just remember your Savior. She was crucified in front of him, and then he has to be crucified upside down because he doesn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. He is transformed. He is different. Think about that. That should be the, the severity of the transformation for each one of us. Before Jesus, before I had the Holy Spirit, I swear to God I don't know him. Like you would have, You would have sworn that you don't know Jesus. You would have been a coward. You would have been... Foolish! You would have done all the things that Peter would have done. But after transformation, you would lay your life down for him truly. And I think, you know, when we think about this symbolism of communion, communion really should mean everything to us or nothing to us based upon whether or not you're transformed by Jesus' love. That symbol here, we should never take lightly because it either means nothing to you or it should mean everything to you. It is not just bread and juice. It is the symbol of what our Savior did to us, for us to transform us and make us a new creation, to save us from our sin, to give us new life. The Bible gives us a warning of not taking communion lightly, of not taking it uh, with a wrong attitude, but with the reverence that it deserves, that this represents his body being broken for you, his blood being shed for you. Christians, we never, we never move past that. We never grow beyond the cross We never get so spiritually mature that those things don't mean everything to us. You never grow beyond a desperate need for a Savior. Ever. We need to have a desperate reliance on Jesus. A desperate need for him. Who needs Jesus? I do. I do. You know, the longer I've been preaching, the more I've been pastoring, the more that I spend in time in the Word, the more I am just blown away by the simplest parts of the Gospel. There's no deeper truth than that what Jesus did for me. I think as Christians sometimes we go, I know the Gospel. I know what he did. Like, can we talk about some other stuff? No. Like, we, that stuff is secondary. <laughs> it's secondary. Of course we talk about other stuff. We do often, but you get my point. You will never mature past the cross because that is the central theme of everything. It's our central doctrine. It's the central work of who Jesus is and what he did for us. So today... Let communion mean everything to you. Don't let it mean nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your only begotten Son to die on a cross for each one of us here. Lord, I pray that none of us would be so proud to say we don't need a Savior that none of us would be so proud to think that we can figure things out on our own, that none of us would be so proud and arrogant to think that we're good enough to earn your love, that we're good enough to earn your presence, that we're good enough to earn your relationship. Lord, but that we would recognize the depravity of our fallen nature, that we are broken, sinful, creatures in desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, every good gift from heaven, every every movement of sanctification where we're casting off sin and becoming that new creation is all in your power and not because we're great. We, have, we will never mature past needing you as our Savior. Lord, I pray that for each one of us today that we would partake of communion, partake of the bread and the cup, boldly understanding the significance of it, coming with a broken and contrite heart, coming to you in need of forgiveness, in need of a Savior,